History, Lecture 114, Rabbi Bleiweiss. The, um, we went, we dived into the very particular tale of the Castell. I tell it with all of its, uh, not all of it, the truth is it's a lot more, but I tell it with some of the salient details in order to paint a picture of a war that's not your typical war. This is going to even be more so when we get to the discussion of the Six-Day War, how it seems, at least to some of us, that Yad Hashem is quite evident to anybody who chooses to look. Um, and that that was true at many of the phases of the war. I mean, I'm going to bring out a couple other issues, but um, I, there are many, many others that I won't be discussing. Um, clearly, this was the Ratzon of Kodesh Baruch Hu, even if we weren't deserving, we weren't worthy, but Kodesh Baruch Hu was uh, there at every step to try to help Klai Yisrael in this very dark, low time in our history. The um, <clears throat> Arabs in Eretz Yisrael have been living here, and previously... Um, some of them had started to leave. The general, and I said this yesterday, the general assumption was that sooner or later there would be a bloodbath and the Arabs would make good on their promises to destroy the Jewish settlement and the Zionist movement. And most of the local Arabs, especially if they were well-to-do, frankly, would have been happier to see it out, see it, see it out up in Beirut or down in Cairo, and you know, send us a telegram when it's all finished, and we'll come back uh, to to, uh, to our you know, afternoon snack. Uh, but we don't really want to be there for the bloodshed. Assuming that there, the many um, millions of Arabs living all over the Middle East would eventually galvanize themselves and be able to form uh, some, something of a, of a coherent army structure and be able to put down the Jews. Um, there were, so there were individuals who had been leaving. Um, again, usually if you had more money, you could afford to do that. Leaving itself is a, is a costly endeavor. Um, but they had not yet, until this point, until about the spring of 1948, they had never started to flee en masse in large groups. And that's what Mitzah Nachshon, that we introduced yesterday, this, this operation to clear the Jerusalem Corridor, which was a central operation of this early phase of the war. There'd be others as well. I'm focusing on this one because of the, um, the sentimental value of Yushalayim being critical for the psychological warfare. The, um, <clears throat> part, partly, the idea of Jews fighting Arabs and Arabs fighting Jews was still relatively new. The history of the conflict, you could trace it back to the 1880s and arguably you could trace it back to 1920. Remember the story we, we told by, um, by Nebi Musa and the, the subsequent massacre in the old city. And then, and then Tarpat, certainly the 1929 massacres, especially in Hebron, but really all over Eretz Yisrael. There'd been, there'd been forays, they'd been fighting, and usually these manifested, these fights manifested themselves in what, we, what looked like today kind of guerrilla attacks um, and skirmishes, and often with bloodshed, but it wasn't a full, full-scale battle. And so the Arabs really didn't know what to expect from the Jews as fighting adversaries, and assumed the worst. And then something else took place, and that is another story that I'm going to tell because it was critical in the mindset of Jews and Arabs. It was all around the same time. It was actually, I should say, it's, it's around exactly the same, the same time uh, as the story around the Castell. It, it takes place corresponding to uh, the same morning of April 9th. So they didn't, Israel didn't clear itself today. It was still like, the mandate was still... 
correct. The mandate is still is still is still um, valid, but they know everybody's got their calendars out. It's now April 9th. The mandate. The British are formally withdrawing on mass on May 14th. So we're just a month away at this point on April 9th, as we find ourselves in, the, in our in our tale, um, just a little bit away from the British withdrawal and then a full scale war, and um, the Jews now are are trying to clear these critical strategic mountaintops surrounding the Jerusalem mountains and thereby protecting the road. You remember what we, we ended with yesterday with the story of the Castell. Well, one mountaintop over from the Castell, closer to Yerushalayim, can you picture it? And you know what I'm talking about? What's it called today? Some of you spent Shabbos there, some of our Rebbe's live there, and you know what, which community I'm referring to? Harnov. Harnov, the top of the mountain, today is a psychiatric hospital called Kfar Shaul that actually sits in a bunch of quaint old Arab structures that used to be the Arab village called, anybody know this story? It's a pretty infamous story. Dir Yassin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting name. Interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. name, why? No, no, I show the, the, the name of the medical center. Kfar Shaul, because Shaul himself had had had, had, had yeah, yeah, yeah. melancholy, melancholy, the other extreme kind of uh, psychosis, and ended up killing himself with suicide. Uh, uh, yeah, but that's, that's harder to. Yeah, that's not exactly mental illness. That's <laughs> that, that's what they use nowadays for suicide. The whole. Uh, I hear. I hear. I don't know. I think the analogy stops. The only reason for the name Kfar Shaul, Givat Shaul, was it was probably misidentified as the original Givat Shaul. And so Kfarshul was simply a, uh, some, an extension of that name. Yeah, okay. Dariusin, it was a, it was a massacre. Oh, so what was Dariusin? Dariusin, let's say, first and, and foremost, the, the name Dariusin was a village. It was another one of these mountain villages um, that, had, that was sitting right over the Jerusalem Tel Aviv Highway, and thereby controlling this central artery that was seen as the artery, the, the, the life source, as it were, for the war, for the Jewish Yishuv and the Arab Yishuv. And in Dariusin, they too were, were among those who waited in ambush as they descended on these poor convoys down in the valley below. And you can picture this if you've been, I imagine you've traveled that road several times this year, and as you're traveling up and down and going on deep in the valley in Motsa, just outside of Yerushalayim, you can, you can pretty, pretty, um, pretty well picture uh, you're sitting right beneath the cemetery of Har Menuchos, which wasn't there. Uh, all you have is this Arab village, and they were, as it were, as we said yesterday, sitting ducks. And um, the Jews, as part of Mitzanachshon, decided that the next target was Dir Yassin. And they went early in the morning. And now, what happened to Dir Yassin? Probably we'll never know. You realize with history, the problems of historians is that it's whatever you choose to emphasize, whoever's point of view you want to you wanna, you wanna emphasize, to get a clear picture is virtually impossible. I, I never even attempted to do that. I'm making my, I try as best I can to make my biases um, clear and I'm upfront about them. Um, I'm giving a Torah history to the best of my understanding. Still, you know, I, I'm interested in finding out what really happened. You could ask the Arab, the, from the Arab perspective, they would certainly use the terminology that Elan just used, which is an absolute massacre, uh, where, where um, up to a hundred, if not more, um, innocent Arabs, men, women, children, old people, were brutally cut down, rapes of the most vile kinds, and people, women with their jewelry t torn out of their uh, torn out of their ears and necks, and just horrific kinds of stories that abound in their account of what happened in Dir Yassin. 
Conversely, if you look up some of the right-wing literature uh, uh, from the Jewish perspective, um, they'll talk about going with loudspeakers. This part is probably true. They went early in the morning before the attack. They went with loudspeakers. They said, please evacuate. We, this is what we're planning to do. It was not the first time that they'd done this. Remember, they'd been, the, the campaign for the Castell was very much in the process. Uh, the, the story that I, I condensed yesterday took place over a whole period of time with Castell, and that was very much the process, and that was not the only place. So the Arabs very, very well knew what was about to take place, and they had the option to flee. And many of them intentionally stayed put. And to some accounts, they intentionally did it so that they wanted a bloodbath because they wanted the good PR. They wanted to be able to make the argument that the Jews were, uh, were, were, were intentionally trying to come and butcher them. Um, according to the, the right-wing version, they say three Arabs maybe were killed. That's a little bit different than 100. Uh, and you look up the records and the accounts, it's very hard to find out what's, what's actually right. I would guess, not that it makes a big difference, is that probably the truth lays somewhere in between the two different extreme accounts of what took place. Well, three is the very specific. You know, your guess is as good as mine, something like that. Three yeah. is a very specific number, though. A very small number, relatively. Does it, when, you, when you talk about you know, a, an attack on a village that leaves three dead, it doesn't really sound like a massacre. It sounds like a calcul, and especially the loudspeakers warning people ahead of time, it sounds like a very calculated part of a, a campaign to try to clear a, 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 a clear clear up a very problematic area. What's that? They constantly do The last one, they, 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 they drop, they, that's right, from the airplanes, they drop the warnings, please get out, we're about to bomb your building. That's, that is a pattern, it doesn't always work perfectly. For do you see whatever that means, and it's all PR, and doesn't validate. I mean, Ruben Rivlin, how would he know exactly what took place anyway? Uh, it's anybody's guess. So that's what we're talking about. Dear Yassin, it lies in this place at the tip of the mountain. Um, what, what we think of Harnot nowadays was the site of this village. Whatever took place, the, the significance of whatever happened there is as far as the Arabs were concerned, it was a massacre. And that actually was very helpful to the Jewish side. Because whether it happened or didn't happen, the fact that the word went out, it terrorized, it indicated the Jews meant business, and it terrorized the Arab countryside. And they were talking about it, the word went out very quickly. Um, often in subsequent attacks, it would, it would galvanize the Arabs and motivate them. Often they would, would raise the attack and they would say, Allah Akbar, and with company with the words, remember Dir Yassin, or this is in retaliation. But what happened at Dir Yassin, one even hears such sentiments today, Dir Yassin remains an icon, something of a, of a symbol um, of the Arab quest, of the Arab, of Arab uh, plight, as it were. Um, but it also, and back to our original discussion, I, I did say that we would get to the discussion of what's today considered the Arab refugee issue, or crisis, or whatever you want to call it. Um, so it also would lead to a gradual, and then suddenly very, very uh, building, picking up momentum, uh, a very significant flight of Arabs en masse um, from, from many of the centers where the Arabs had, has, had lived up until this point. 
so significantly. Um, the huge Arab populations in towns like Lod and Ramla, which are very centrally located, certainly if you think of geopolitical Israel today, Lod and Ramla are right near Tel Aviv, are right near the airport. Lod is the airport, that's where the airport is located. And that those were predominantly Arab places that were not emptied out, but significantly reduced. Yafo was significantly reduced, that, these, that many Arabs simply fled Lod and Ramla basically fled north. Many of the Jews from the mountain areas around the whole Jerusalem corridor left en masse willingly um, in fear and with the promises, the assurances of their leaders that it's just a temporary thing. This is just to protect you and the family until the fighting is over and then you'll all come back and re-inhabit your homes. It's an important point to understand because from their perspective today, and you look at their very sophisticated propaganda machine that exists, and their websites, for example, you see they document the War of Independence, and they say this is where the, um, the genocidal Zionists came, and like they use all the terminology from the Holocaust, the genocidal Zionists came to liquidate, to exterminate the Arab people. And this village was a village of, of the, uh, Nakba, Nakba is the Black Day that they celebrate. They'll celebrate it next week, or their that's their day of mourning. The day of the Jews' independence is the day when the, the Arabs uh, lost, as it were, by, by 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 the creation of a Jewish state. And they remember this, and they they, they till today it's a symbol for them. But um, they're talking, they talk about getting kicked out, but what you're saying, they they um, it was a little complicated. There were places, as I indicated in Dir Yassin, as an example, um, that they were told to leave. It's true. Um, even well, I mean, even um, the most peaceable place in the entire Jerusalem corridor, most of the almost all of the Arab villages were hostile and were, were agents of death and, and, and brutality against the Jews. Um, with one exception, the Sheikh of Abu Ghosh, right next door to where we live, the Sheikh of Abu Ghosh was, was famously peaceable. Uh, he, in one quotation, was said to have when, when some immodest uh, young Jews set up shop in a new kibbutz. Uh, that's called historical Nevelan today, um, and, they, and the Arab Mukhtar came over from Abu Ghosh, and they were watching the various immodestly dressed young teenage girls from France, Jewish Jewish girls from France in, in uh, Nevelan, and the Arabs were, were um, appalled by the immodesty of these Jews because the Arabs were traditional, and um, and one of the young toughs of the Arabs suggested to his to, to the uh, chief of, of Abu Ghosh, let's kill them all now. And the, and, the, and the chief of Abu Ghosh says, with the Jews, we don't make war, we make business, which is a, which is a, which is a promise they've made good until today. Abu Ghosh does very well, fancy restaurants, the secular restaurants that the, uh, that the, that the secular Jews patronize till today. What is that? World famous hummus. Right? Famous hummus, right? They, they keep trying to set the record, and they're outdone by the record, so they make a bigger hummus. Um, that's not really something in Olam Haba I want to be known for, you know, the largest hummus, but, you know, go figure. The... Um, <laughs> Okay, so you, you, yeah, so you're right, it's complicated. There are many Arabs who are leaving willingly, other Arabs who are leaving forcefully, and it's a combination, because they're also terrorized. And part of the terror is realistic, it's understandable. And you know, they had an option. If, if it were up to the Jews, some of us might have fled too, but we didn't have an alternative. There was no safe haven for the Jews to go flee to. So we all stayed put, and not only did we stay put, but as I indicated yesterday, many of our wives and children also took part in the fighting because it was a fight for your life. For the Arabs, it wasn't a fight for your life because, again, you could sit out the war safely as far as Tunisia and wait till all the all of the no, dust settles. 
they talk about like uh, the refugee issue, like right. they were all kicked out. Well, because that's better for their narrative. So, that's more. That's more. So, as you can understand why they would, and they talk about it so vehemently that it becomes almost a fact on the ground. They've colored the way people remember things. Boy, they, yeah, we were kicked out. They did forcibly evict us. When in fact, often that was not the case. They willingly led, left. And, and it was a combination. They were terrorized. The, the prospect of dear Yassin coming to our own home was scary to people. I mean, these are human beings. As much as, as, much as we have a tendency on the Jewish side to demonize the Arabs, uh, these are human beings who would like to survive and like the children survive too. And that was, that was part of, in war, these are, these are kinds of the, the, the decisions that people make. It's like offensive Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are you What are you trying to get? Yeah. And you're like we had to. We didn't have a choice. Like if you're going to keep killing us, we're going to kick you out. You mm-hmm. know, we mm-hmm. give you the option. Right. So you're defending the Jewish perspective. Right. right. Like we could have just gone in and killed them and be technically within our rights. You know. That's what happens in war a lot of the time. That's why in the, around you know a few years earlier, a couple years or a couple years earlier, Truman made the decision to bomb Hiroshima and uh, right and, and because you kill you kill was that just a couple years ago? Oh well, no, see, we're we're in the spring of 1948, so just a, a mere few years before this, Truman had made that exact calculated uh, decision on the assumption that you kill many people today, it'll actually spare you know much greater hardships in the future, and it'll actually bring the end of the war. Because as we made the point yesterday. Wars are psychological, and the guy who wins only won because the other guy realized, I'm not going to get out of this thing. I'm not going to win this one. And so sometimes it ta- it, they do call for drastic measures. So, okay, I'm trying, to get, I'm trying to paint a scene. I'm not defending or apologizing. I'm just explaining as best we can. In 1945, uh, a few years beforehand, um, an organization was founded called the Arab League. It was the highest form of what they call pan-Arab policy. Uh, as I mentioned before, the Arabs were internally conflicted. It was very hard for them to agree on almost anything. It was not a natural meeting of minds. Uh, you're talking about different ideologies. I mean, you're talking about sometimes, I mean, most of, the, most of the Arab League, like most of the Arabs in the world, were Sunni, but there were Shia interests to be represented. And even within the Sunni uh, Muslim uh, populations, there's tremendous infighting. I mentioned they're coming out of Sunni later. <laughs> Shia later. The um, okay, the uh, the Arab League was not in favor of a Palestinian independence. That's to be said for the record, and that was their position from 1945 and throughout the War of Independence. Um, each member state coveted the land of Palestine for itself. Thank you very much, Jordan. Certainly, right there next to it, saw the war as very much between the you know the Zionists and the Jordanians. And when we get rid of the Zionists, this whole area, this whole area will be part of Transjordan, as far as they were concerned. That was the, that was their idea. That's right. Everybody wants a piece of the pie. I mean, it's not so unlike what we saw in the 19th century, the Christian world trying to slice and dice, slice up the various sections of Palestine, assuming that they could claim it as their own. The British almost succeeded until they realized they'd gotten in way over their heads and they withdrew in 1948. Um, Now, as we've been seeing initially, the people involved in the bloodshed and the fighting since November 30th were mostly local Arabs. We saw with the story of Castel, slowly we see the influx of foreign elements of the Jordan League and others coming in and starting to fight as well, especially when their defeats started mounting, because sometimes the 
um, the Jews were successful in their various campaigns. Um, and the Arabs started to see these new refugees, these, these other, these local Arabs who were fleeing, they were starting to enter into lands. Now, um, it was in April that the state leaders of the Arab states surrounding Israel, they made the decision very reluctantly to invade Palestine. Each one, for its own reasons, had reasons to worry. They had their own internal problems. Um, and this is the state of affairs as we find it going, as, we, as we're heading into the Declaration of Independence. Now, the um, Arabs were big on threats. The Zionists really didn't know, with all, of their, um, with all of their intelligence, they really didn't know if the Arabs, the armies of the Arabs, if their capabilities matched the threats, whether they really could make good on what they promised. Um, it was anybody's guess because many of these armies had not really been put to the test and um, it was not clear that they could function in a coordinated way. You could have a large army, you could even have reasonable munitions, but if you can't function together as a cohesive unit, if you can't cooperate the Syrian army with the Egyptian army and the Jordanians, uh, it's not going to go over very well. The, um, but the Zionists, as a, as a modus operandi, took the threats seriously. And they were concerned existentially. They felt, they felt that this was literally a fight to the death. Uh, they were grossly outnumbered. I'll, give, I'll throw a few statistics out to you. Um, 22 Arab states had pledged their support, either physically, militarily, they're going to send their armies, certainly financially, uh, and, and with the potential promise of sending reinforcements, even if, even if their soldiers were not there on the ground. The actual armies of Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, <laughs> Syria, and Lebanon uh, by April had decided to invade Palestine together with the local Arabs and th those were the entire armies of those five nations that I just mentioned. But now add to the local Arabs plus they had extra contingents. When I say contingents that means that the following armies didn't come en masse but they sent representation, sometimes significant representation from Saudi Arabia, Sudan and Yemen. And Yemen you had approximately 120,000 um, relatively trained troops uh, lined up against this small Jewish underground mil military, uh, which were about 38,000 troops. That's 120,000 to 38,000. Now, the British, you remember, outlawed the Jews from manufacturing munitions or carrying arms. They were effectively meant to fight with their arms tied behind their backs. Egypt, Syria, Iraq all had air forces. Um, the Jews, not yet, they didn't have the planes just yet. They had two tanks. Um, no, excuse me, excuse me, run, 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 no, that's not, sorry. No, I'll, I'll say what they just said. The, um, Egypt and Syria had, had their own tanks and they, they brought them in. Uh, they all had a relatively modern artillery. Uh, 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 artillery. Um, most had been trained by the British and French instructors. Remember, the British and French had been colonists in the area and had trained in modern warfare, trained all these Arab armies in, in modern warfare. Here's what the Haganah had. They had a little more than two tanks, but they had no heavy machine guns, zero heavy machine guns. You need, if you're fighting a modern war, whatever modern is, whatever whatever phase you're alive in, you need the um, munitions that are somehow in sync with your enemy. So they, machine guns is what was used, but they didn't have any. Uh, they had no armored vehicles. They had no anti-tank or anti-aircraft weapons. 
they had no military aircraft. They had no tanks. You're welcome. Uh, they um, did have a range of different guns. They had about one weapon for every three fighters. Can I have my other gun now? No, no, I need it now. Right? One weapon. One weapon. Sometimes a pistol. Sometimes an Uzi. What? There's a place in Rehoboth that's like... Yeah, that's right. It's called, it's the Underground Munitions Factory on the Kibbutz Mahonai alone, it's called. Uh, where you can visit. They, they, they got around it. They were clever and strategic. Have you ever been, who, who else other than Elan has been to Mahonai alone? So you can go today and you can see how they set up this whole uh, clever system where they produce bullets underground. Bullets. I mean, it's not like you're talking about they didn't produce tanks or anti anti aircraft you know uh, weapons or anything like that. At least they had. Uh, you got to get some bullets, right? So they produced them. And how did they do it? It's 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 noisy. And how do you conceal such a thing from the British? The British were constantly coming out inspecting, and the British had their own intelligence, and they suspected something was up. So they had two industries on the, on a surface level in the in the kibbutz. They what did they have? A laundry, which makes a lot of the machines make a lot of noise, right on top, and they had a bakery, which were also very noisy. And every time they, they made the bullets, they made sure to be baking all kinds of uh, breads and whatever else in their bakery on top. And they got away with it. And you can go and you can see it till today. It's very, it's very cute. I mean, part of it irks me a little because it, it's yet more celebration of the cleverness of the Israelis. They like to celebrate themselves a lot. But okay, that's. I mean, some, in some cases, you can understand why 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 they would take some credit. Um, they had, <laughs> they developed something called the Davidka mortar. You can go to the Davidka square up near Machane Yehuda and see an example of the Davidka mortar. The Davidka mortar was developed by a guy actually who comes from uh, the first agricultural school in uh, Mikveh Yisrael in Cholon. Um, but the, he, uh, it was a big machine that were utterly inaccurate and uh, useless, but their advantage was they made a spectacularly loud noise and scared everybody. So you set them up and boom, oh no, what's that? And you just felt the skies were falling even though nothing effectively had happened. Uh, but again, war is psychological, so these, these had their, yeah, these, these did, did a certain, uh, what's that? Did nah, didn't, didn't, didn't do anything, but it made a really loud noise. All right, I, I, again, these are, I, I'm trying to paint this picture because I'm arguing, there's no way in a million years that we should have survived this thing. So it's not the Davidka that did this for us, it's not the underground munitions factory in Mahonai alone, it's not any of these things. Some of us would say, again, it's Hashkach HaPratis. Kaddish Baruch is doing this. What is this reminiscent of? What are we thinking about? Think about the Tanakh. Come on, think about the Tanakh. What's, what's the battle I'm thinking of? Gidon. Gidon. Kol Gidon. Do you remember Gidon going against the Midian? And, and all these Jews come and, they, and, and, and Hashem says, send them away. Because if they all fight this thing, they're going to think that they're the ones who brought, brought about the victory. I want 300 men and a few ancient Molotov cocktails. And shofars. And shofars. Blow the shofar because you make a big loud noise like a Davidka. Like, like a Davidka. And, 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 and they were effective then and the Jews were effective today. And the connections to my mind are eerie. Eerily accurate. And all you have to do is look around and see the ashkacha, see the, see the spiritual connection. But again, we, you know, we're not trained to do that nowadays. We're too rational in our, in our outlook. Um, Usually, though, and in the end, of course, most of the, um, you know, the fighters would take credit for themselves. We were brilliant. We were clever. We did what we had to do. Okay. The, um, on Hey ER, it's commemorated next week. Hey ER is, um, I'm going to be speaking about this next, next um, Sunday at 1230, the Yom, Yom Hatzmaus, uh celebrations and what is a Torah perspective on, on this. Um, the Yishuv, as it was called, the Yishuv, the settlement, the Jewish settlement, 
made a calculated strategic decision that they were going to declare unilateral independence. What does it mean unilaterally, one-sided? Unilateral independence means we, we're independent, why? Because we said so. We are declaring we're a state just because the British aren't here anymore, and they did. The reasons for this are the British gone. If you have a state and you can somehow <laughs> diplomatically win recognition from the various powers of the world, what you could do is instead of, say it again? You could request aid. You could, as a legitimate entity, no longer be deemed an illegal guerrilla underground operation. You could, uh, you could get diplomatic support. You could, with greater ease, import arms. If you're a recognized state, then people would say, oh, well, they're you know, importing arms. That's something the states do. If you're just an underground guerrilla operation, then that's very, very difficult. You could assert greater control of the land, of the sea, of the airspace as an independent nations, nation, and again, you could pursue all kinds of diplomatic ties and, 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 and support abroad. You could, you could. You could accuse people, you could sue people for war crimes. That's, um, I think, in the mentality of 1948, they weren't thinking like that. Now that we have the Hague, right, uh, that, that's something that's more relevant to the post-1990s world, the post-Balkans world. Uh, the people now sue each other for war crimes, but that's that's really your lifetime, not in this lifetime, I think. Um, I meant like, and like, sue them for like coming into their country and stuff. And I don't think people are more influenced by the Americans. People in the 21st century are much more. Um, they like litigation. They like suing one another. It's one way of making the point. It's it's a way of It's a way of pursuing a war diplomatically. Right, but that, that was not as much a, a factor back, back in the day. Um, the idea of having your own state was obviously symbolic uh, in the mode of the nations. We will be a nation like all other nations. And if you ever read and study the wording of the Declaration of Independence, that was all that was done. On Arab Shabbos, May 14th, 1948, all they did effectively was read a document. Nothing happened, nothing changed. Quite the contrary, their fortunes were about to turn for the, for the dramatic worse. As the British withdrew and as all the armies invaded, it was gonna get extremely bleak for the Jews. So nothing really effectively happened. You wonder, well, then what are they celebrating? Why is Yom Hatzmah such a great day if nothing really happened? All they did was read this document and that's a question, and we'll try to figure that out, what they're celebrating. I, I think my favorite detail is that when they actually read it out loud, yes. they had it on, like, it looked like it was on an official document. Yes. But it was actually just on sheets of paper. Right, because they hadn't even come up with it. I mean, it was, it was such a right before Yeah, but the truth is, is that's part of the, that's part of the romantic view of these, the ragtag Jews who are, who are just pasting together a state as it were on the fly. That, I think, they tell themselves as part of the bravado of the experience. Um, I'm pointing out that it was a it was a calculated strategic uh, act maneuver that was meant to try to strengthen their hand, um, but one that I think, from a religious perspective, should at least make us question: What does it mean as a symbol? Um, within two days of the target date, of, uh, by Wednesday, May 12th. The Yishuv was deeply torn up between itself. They could not, three Jew, two Jews, three opinions, they could not agree on the wording of the document. That's one of the reasons why they had so many different pieces of papers, because which version are you going to use? You had now a um, pre-state 
everything but a, an actual government set up with all the various factions and disagreements that you recognize today in the Knesset. They had all that back then. I mean, it's like a slightly different representation, but there were religious, mostly secular. There were the radical Marxist extreme uh, left wing. You had all the various factions represented. Um, and they couldn't agree on what to say in the, in the documentation. Um, the most contentious debate, anybody know? What was the big issue? A word. Anybody know which word? Pretty significant from our perspective. Thus, a good word. Um, that was uh, Mary McCarthy's famous put down of Lillian Hellman. She said, everything the woman writes is a lie, including the and and. Um, no, it wasn't those, wor those words. It was the word Hashem. See, the religious faction said you cannot come back after 1900 years of exile as a Jewish nation and claim that you're a Jewish state and not in some way, shape, or form acknowledge in the symbolic piece of paper you're about to read that a Kodesh Baruch who brought us to this moment. That was the, that was the um, issue at hand. In the end, Hashem lost that debate, as the Zionists had it. Um, the final outcome was they would not mention Hashem, they would not mention Elohim, they would not use any of the traditional uh, terminology. They did draw from a pasuk that was a reference to Kaddish Baruch Hu. They used the term Tzur Yisrael, the Rock of Israel. But Ben-Gurion, as the figurehead, assured his radically secular colleagues it did not mean Hashem, it meant whatever you wanted it to mean. Jewish tradition, the Jewish spirit, whatever kind of new age formulation you'd like to have. But Tzur Yisrael is just the Rock of Israel, the Rock of the Jewish people, because we're a rock, because we're still here, we fight the wars, we're in the swamps. That's how he had it. Um, they, the Mizrahi contingent persisted. They said, you have to make mention of something tradition. You have to mention the word Torah, mention the prophets, mention something, the mitzvahs that, that, that sustain the Jewish people, or maybe something about the promised land of uh, the land of, of Palestine. All, each of these successions, um, each of these suggestions were um, in due process all rejected and um, in what will become a boilerplate secular doc declaration um, that really just sounds like a classic democratic of the nations, by the nations, nothing to do, they had, they had depleted any Jewish content from the declaration, and that was symbolic. And that's all that happened on this day, and it's one of the, one of the central reasons why the religious world, I'm gonna talk about the religious reaction to the formation of the state, why this date is, let's say, in the classic view, seen as problematic. Not symbolizing something that's worthy of celebration, but something that's, it's after all just a symbol anyway, and it's a symbol that we want to rally around. It's a symbol when they read a, uh, a piece of paper that effectively wrote a Kaddish Baruch out of the equation. 4.30, it was uh, done in enough time, barely for them to people to get back home for Shabbos Kodesh. 4.30 on Arab Shabbos, a group assembled in Tel Aviv, the symphony upstairs played the Hatikva, which is a problematic national anthem. You, you recall that I mentioned Rav Kook wrote his alternate um, national anthem, having objected to Hatikva. Uh, Ben-Gurion read the text, all was broadcast live on a radio, and um, that was it. That was the significant event of the day. Um, the only thing that changed, practically, was that that night, Iraq, Egypt, Jordan, and Lebanon all invaded Palestine with their armies. Actually, I guess now it's Israel. 
Right. That was part of the discussion. What do we call this new state? And Israel, we, we now accept it as an obvious fact on the ground. It's got to be called Israel. That was not a, a given that it was going to be called Israel. You remember, Israel really is, is um, not really the pure name of this land. We call it Eretz Yisrael. It's the land of the tribes of Yisrael. Yisrael being one of the names of Yaakov Avinu. So calling it Israel itself is a has it carries with it a slight tinge of secular secularization to it. Israel, Israel's a name, it's a person, it's Eretz Israel, and there are people, the Rabbanim, who are actually mocked never to call the country Israel. They only call it Eretz Israel from a religious perspective. Wait, is this the only land that's named by the people as opposed to people being named by the land? It's the only land that's named by a people. That sounds like something a tour guide would say. Uh, as opposed to some... Well, I mean, in the modern day, you could say that, except that really that no, yeah, yeah. name comes from no, the I'm historical talking, name of Eretz Yisrael. No, I'm talking about in, in, in the Torah. So it's named by the people? No, no it's, it's named, named after somebody. It's named after the people, as opposed to the people being called... Like, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, that's a fair... That, I, I, I hear and accept what you're saying, right? In other words, it's, a name, it's named after the people... That's how Kachbaru refers to it too. Same, the land of the people of Amishra. That's right. That's a, that's a fair statement. I mean, that, among many other things, distinguishes us from the nations. And we're meant to be, we're proud to be distinguished from the nations. I mean, I, maybe I didn't hit this one hard enough, but I, I should emphasize this point. Um, it's never been our ambition as a Jewish people to be like the nations. Uh, in fact, that's what got us into trouble. Uh, I bring you back to the beginning of the year. We talked about the, the um, all of Am Yisrael going to their prophet named, which Navi am I thinking of? Shmuel and Navi, and saying, please give us a king. Like, we'd be like all of the nations. And he said, oh yeah, you want a king? You know what? There's, there's a Gemara that talks about something like that. Maybe you're familiar with the Gemara. The Gemara says, B'derch she'adam holech molichin oso. The Gemara says, you ever hear that one in the last two minutes? Right? B'derch she'adam holech, and the way you want to go, we'll take you there. Shmuel says, you want a king? I'll give you a king, and you're going to live to regret it. Right? Um, that's where we're going to take you. And that's not good to be like the other nations. You remember when we make alliances with the nations, what happened to Asa Melech, Shlomo's uh, right, descendant? That, that Asa, Asa made, made forged a treaty with, with the king of Aram, and it was to his detriment. And the Jews suffered as a result of that. And that'll have ramifications all the way down to the generation of Gedaliah. We told that story uh, many months ago. As we, as, as we encounter history. So it's never been our ambition. So the fact that you have this secular document that celebrates that the Jews are going to be like all the other nations is not exactly a proud achievement, to say the least. The next month of fighting was extremely severe, and anybody alive then would have told you that it did not look good, uh, and that's putting it mildly. It looked like the Jews were going to be devastated. Um, I'll summarize, but the situation is like this. They had certain victories. But the Jews had pushed their manpower and their arsenal to the limits. They had almost nothing left. They kept that fact mostly a secret. The Arabs didn't quite realize how desperate the situation had become for the Jews, but they were about to lose everything. It really had come to that. And, and, and people, fortunately, most of the Jews themselves didn't know that. The top brass in Tel Aviv kept a lot of this quiet as well because had the Jews realized how desperate their situation was, uh, many of them would have given up, given up fighting as well. Uh, there was a shortage of everything. There was no food left. There was very little water. Jerusalem was strangled. Um, they were almost out of ammunition. Uh, and the perception... Now, they couldn't keep the secret so well, started to spread around that they couldn't hold out much longer. And there had to be Yeshua. 
and suddenly secular people were turning, there's no atheists in a fox, foxhole, if you know the expression, started, they started davening. Because when you're desperate, that's what you do. And Chazde Hashem again, on June 11th, the Israelis managed to broker with the assistance of the United Nations a truce. The truce lasted from June 11th to June 28th, and those few weeks of respite from the fighting, arguably, if you look at this militarily and strategically, you would recognize that these three weeks saved the Jews. Okay, and again, what I would say, I would point to the some would say the Yad Hashem, which is the the uh, the difference the Gemara says between the Yad Hashem versus Etzpelokim. Etzpel is when he does a few isolated miracles. That's the term that's used by the Chartumei Paro in Egypt, where they say that's the finger of, of Hashem doing the isolated um, different plagues. But the Yad Hashem was the grand display by the Amsuf. That was Hashem's hand, outstretched hand, who really saved the day. They would have said, this is Yad Hashem in action, this respite from the fighting, because it was during this critical period from June 11th to June 28th that the Israelis imported artillery, planes, munitions, they regrouped, they rested. Uh, many believe that this was the pure Hashkocha Pratis that turned the fate of the war, and if you see the struggle of the war, everything turns around now. They're about, I mean, it's gradual, but effectively, I can say by October, that was the fighting resumed from the end of June, and after uh, a pretty difficult, hairy uh, few months of summer, uh, the, the summer, the summer of 1948 of fighting, but the, the fates, the, the, the situation of the Jews turned around dramatically so that by, we could say pretty reasonably that by October of 1948, many people feel that the Jews were so well situated and so, had such a, uh, a superiority over their Arab um, uh, antagonists that they were, they could have had they chosen to taken all of Yehuda Shomron, the whole area of the West Bank that eventually in the armistice agreements went over to Jordan, could have been reasonably taken by the Jews without much extra effort. Uh, they certainly could have had Yerushalayim here at Kodesh. Yerushalayim had been had been. Um, uh, it was it was many feel it was a choice by the Yishuv also around the time of the Declaration of Independence on the same Arab Shabbos the Jews of ancient Yerushalayim of the old city of today were marched out of Yerushalayim to the western part of the city the Jordan Jordan League captured the old city and took the men of military fighting age into captivity and they took the old city um, and and evacuated the Jews and destroyed many of the Jewish um, buildings and uh, and, and settlements. Uh, and that part of Jerusalem fell, and many feel that that was also a conscious decision on the, on the part of the secular brass in Tel Aviv. They didn't want the tradition. That was was uh, something that was a bit of a hung on their around their necks like something of a millstone, where it's a burden because Jerusalem represents tradition, tradition that most of them had rejected, and uh, they were happy to give that up. So the fact that we didn't have Yerushalayim near Kodesh, the center of Yerushalayim, the Harabais. Uh, the fact that we didn't have Yesha, Yehuda Shomron, which were central biblical lands, these were choices. I mean, Atal Pratis, but had they wanted to, they arguably could have gotten these areas. Um, the question came up, every option now was, was, was well considered. There was one option, what was going to be? Are you going to create a state? Is it going to be independence? What are you going to do with all these Arabs here? And one of the notions that was widely discussed was to have a binational state. If you had a binational state, the notion of democracy would have been impossible. How do you have Jews and Arabs who are foes, who are sworn to the death, how do they somehow coexist in one nation when they're voting? Uh, that just doesn't seem viable. 
um, there was a contingent, there was a whole group within the, within the Yishuv that argued for Girush, for what they call today transfer. Uh, it's an idea that one associates with the politics of the far right, Mir Kahana and others, talk about the transference of Arabs. In other words, take all the Arabs that are living in Israel and simply put them on buses. And you know what? You know, put them on luxury designer buses and give them lots of money, but send them someplace else. Get rid of them. Interesting, interesting prospect. Do you know who are the architects of this theory? Interesting figures. Among them, Yigal alone, and very strikingly, Yitzhak Rabin, who in later parts of his life would be associated with the extreme left-wing peace movement as he signs the Oslo Accords in 1993. But Yitzhak Rabin, once upon a time, was in favor of transfer. Um, what, what is the purpose of transfer of population? Well, they actually they did do something. They did do something during the war, during the fighting. One of the many operations was something called Mivtsa Mitatea, uh, which is a cute name. Operation Broomstick. Why, op why Operation Broomstick? They went into, right, that's what they did. They went up in the north of Israel, it's called the Finger of the Galley, Etzbagalil, and they swept like a broom. They swept all the Arabs out of that area. Well, how instructive and interesting, because you know, if you think of the Hula Valley, who's, who's been up there? That's where they have bird watching and all kinds of other fun tourist, tourist things. Um, there are strikingly, what, there's just, what, very few Arabs in this area. Yeah, because they swept, Yitzhak Rabin and Yigal alone swept them out of there. And it's been, since 1948, one of the most peaceful, one of the most tranquil areas in all of Israel. What do you know? No Arabs and Jews living on top of each other. Do you know where there are Arabs and Jews living on top of each other? Oh, why? Hello. <laughs> right across the street from us. Everywhere you go. And one of the few exceptions is, up, is the Hula Valley in the north because they got rid of them. That's what you do. And honestly, in most, um, most militaries, most modern, last few hundred years at least, most modern warfare has involved transfer populations. That's what everybody's done, and it's effective because it's kind of silly to have your enemy living in your midst. And Yitzhak, you were articulating earlier that sometimes in war, you have to do what's prudent. You have to do what's, what strategically makes sense to try to ensure if the, the goal of war and the end of the day is peace, and you'd like for the population to be able to live in relative security. Who said, uh, the president said, we make war so that we can have peace. And he's just, He's just articulating the obvious. Of course we make war and we have peace. Part of the idea, of course, is if you have enemies living on top of each other, you're, you might be able to put out the immediate flame, the immediate fire, but you're not going to solve the long-term problem, and that's been the issue, certainly one of the many issues that's plagued, plagued the Israelis and, and, and their Arab neighbors from this period. Um, create two different areas where the people can live separately from one another, where they don't have to be tripping on each, over each other. Go ahead. Uh, some like old old philosopher like like ancient times said, he who wants make who he who wants peace uh, prepare for war. Yeah, uh. fair enough. I, I I don't know how you're hearing all this right now, but I might sound to you as like a, a right wing ideologue in some of the some of these ideas. I actually really don't feel that strongly. Maybe my my presentation is sounds passionate. I'm not so passionate about these ideas. I think there are important little themes to bring out in the in the bigger discussion of this. Um, there's a interesting figure in modern Israel, Ilan Mistami, you might have read, you've heard of Benny Morris. Benny Morris is a figure who used to be a, a left-wing um, historian from Britain, originally. I think his family was British, but he grew up in Israel on the kibbutz, and he defected from the left-wing and became right-wing. And he, start, he talks about a lot of these themes and the idea of transfer of populations as being something that may be in the best interest of all the people involved in this conflict. Don't know. 
No, no, I, I, you know, I, I move away from geopolitical kinds of solutions when I, I understand that what's going on in this land has spiritual significance and really can only be resolved through tshuva of the Jewish people. But um, in any case, they got rid of the, um, the Arabs from the Hula Valley. They never apologized for it, um, right? Since that time, the idea of transfer, whatever term you want to call it, has been deemed a racist policy, an idea that's associated with the extreme right, and I wonder if that's so logical. Uh, maybe, maybe it's not such a right-wing idea. Um, there would be many operations. There would be temporary truces. I'm skipping a lot of the details. I brought you a few just to give you a sense of the fighting. Most of the intense fighting, as I said, was in the summer and then the fall. Most would culminate the following spring in 1949. If you ask for the dates of the War of Independence, uh, let's say in a secular Zionist history class, usually they, they date the beginning of the war on November 30th with a terrorist attack in 1947, and they culminate sometime around the springtime of 49 when they, in a messy kind of <laughs> series of meetings, met the, the Israelis and their um, fighting partners, the Egyptians and the Jordanians and the Iraqis and the Syrians and the, and the Lebanese, would meet and eventually arrange for a truce. And, a and didn't, nobody ever promised to stop hating each other. Uh, so the meetings were tense and fraught, but that there would be some kind of respite in the fighting and that the war would officially be over. And that was what they called the armistice negotiations and then agreements. The last operation is a fantastic story. I'm not going to tell it right now, but you can look it up. It's called Mivza Uvda. Uvda means fact. And what they realized is, they, is in the spring, of, in, in March 10th of 1949, the Israelis realized, hey, wait, all the fighting is coming, is, is starting to, is, it's now coming down to the end. And the way you work out armistice lines in war, usually according to the uh, UN conventions, is you figure out where you have your um, people. No, you have, yeah, exactly, where the people are based, and then that becomes defective. De facto, those are your borders. Well, so there was this whole area, if you picture the map of, map of modern Eretz Israel, you had ancient Eretz Israel, right, up, up here, right? And so, so up here, and then, and then this, this area, right, this is all, this was Syria, and this, this area here would be, would be Jordan, this is the West Bank and Yerushalayim, um, right? But then you had coming down here, then you had coming down here, and here you got your, your Jordan Valley, right? Here's the Jordan Valley coming down. And then coming down over here, you got your Negev, but much south of Beersheba, in the, in, the, in the middle, kind of like northern area of the Negev, you didn't have much going on, Jews or Arabs, just open tracts of land. But as a new Jewish state, they kind of liked the idea of open tracts of land. So Mifza Uftau was the purpose. They had a secret race. They assigned several of the top military factions, the Golani and others, um, to race down to see who could get to um, uh, Umrashrash quicker. Um, Umrashrash was the Arab name for it. Later on, they called it Elat. Okay? Elat down here, and in, in Itza the first group, and the story goes more or less that they went, and the, the goal was to go down to Umrashrash and raise the Israeli flag. Only they had, or they did everything, and they did it very, very quickly, and they were very effective, and all the, you know, the, you know, 
pat, pat themselves on the back and all the rest. They forgot one little detail. You know what they forgot? Flag. <laughs> flag. Yeah, oops. So they made a makeshift flag, and there's a picture of it. You could look. I think in, in the Wikipedia entry under Um Rashash, they, they they actually have the, the, the picture of the Israelis raising. You could see it's a made makeshift flag that they, they quickly colored in. You know, like an Israeli flag, and they, they hoisted the flag down there. There's a monument. If, have you been to Elat? There's a monument of where they raised the flag in the in the modern city of, of Elat today. They took they took, and that's why the borders. Wow, this is a terrible map. Totally distorted, but okay. You get my gist. Uh, the borders actually include what was not the area south of Beersheba was not historically included in most maps of Eretz Israel, halachic and otherwise. Certainly, it'd be a way way south of where the tribes entered Eretz Israel and divided Eretz Israel. But that was what they took. Um, <coughs> And that was considered the end of the war. Um, they drew a part of their maps. There was a line that they drew delineating the borders called the green line. Do you know why it was called the green line? They used a green marker. I kid you not. This is the truth. In drawing the armistice slide, somebody had a green marker that became the green line. It was also a messy green line. It was not always with topography in mind, meaning sometimes on their maps, you know, like they drew a picture of the border that went right over somebody's nursery or something like that. And, you know, whose country is this one in? And that created all kinds of immediate conflicts. What's that? We're now sitting on part of the green line. This was a, a sea of barbed wire. This was the, the, this was the border territory between Israel uh, it, or Samaria was located on the green line between Israel to the west and Jordan to the east. Oh, like that monument? The monument, that monument that I showed you that we went to many months ago was the gate in Jerusalem, the Mandelbaum Gate, which was the border crossing between Israel and Jordan for the years between before the Six-Day War. Correct, you have good memory. Uh, correct. So that was the green line. The borders were precarious. They were also uneven. Sometimes it was very thin. Other places, like it's a big, big unused swath of land, go figure. Um, they were subject to lots of infiltration. They were fragile. We'll hear in the early years of the states, there were, there were constant terrorist attacks over the borders. Uh, the, in, the, in their minds, the Arabs had made some kind of a temporary truce, but it was anything but peace, and their goals were, remained to kick out the Jews and to throw them into the Mediterranean Sea. Um, What's that? Uh, they were being defeated. It was no, better than the alternative. Oh, and in June, June 11th, they were also struggling. And they didn't realize, they thought, again, that they thought this, but they thought that the Jews were better off than they were, and they were struggling too at that point in the war, and they thought that the, um, that the pause in the fighting would be to their advantage. They were wrong on that level. How were they struggling? No, no, because the Jews had, had, had I, I tried to, be, I, I was being too quick perhaps, but the, the Jews had had victories. It's just their victories came with the last of their munitions. Great, we won the war. Any bullets left? No, but don't tell them. That was the situation. The Arabs didn't know that. So that's why they agreed to the troops. Okay, but that was then. And who knew? And that's what we say. It's all psychological. And you always say, oh no, what are we going to do? And they thought, okay, we'll, we'll use this truce to our advantage. That's what people think. And uh, okay, you know, that's, that's how uh, Kaddish Baruch runs the world. Um, the border, if you look at the map, if you look at the map of where the, where the West Bank runs, right, most of the country is, as I articulated, this is the Israeli expression, half a cigarette away from Jordan for the years between 48 and 67. 
1949 and 67, they were, you know, where most of the population centers were, they were just over the border and the borders were not, you know, borders, I've made this point several times this year, borders are um, theoretical. Not, there's no such thing as a perfectly hermetic border. If somebody has a will, even through the security fence, if they really want to, they can get through. America too, but anywhere in the world, if somebody has a desire to get through it, if somebody's talking about like a suicide bomber, what does he care if he dies? He'll risk his life to get across the border. What do you have? Oh, there you go. Hey, is that nice? Yes, this is the famous story of photos of um, Russia with the, with the makeshift flag that they were hoisting up in a lot. Yeah, thanks for thanks for that, Barack. Um, Elon's with us still. You want to see the flag? You see the, you see the picture? Okay. Um, <coughs> so you're talking about a pretty scary piece where the Arabs are just over the way. Uh, but still, relative, if we, if we regroup and now we find ourselves in the spring of 1949, if we, we think about it, Compare what we have now in, in the spring of 1949 with just a year and a half ago what was, what was offered in the partition plan of November of 1947, and the Jews did much better. The partition plan, you remember, was abysmal. It was, it was a terrible compromise for the Jews. They had about now, with the, with the gains of the war, they had about a third more land allotted to them than what the partition plan would have given them. They also had continued continuity, meaning you had a you know, continuous Jewish state as opposed to a patchwork that you needed to cross through Arab lands in order to get from one place to the next, uh, which can't be uh, emphasized enough how, how important that, that would have been. Western Yerushalayim, that away, not here, but Western Yerushalayim was in Jewish hands. The original old city, as we said, um, with Harabais was in Jordan, meaning they got the goods, they got the most exciting, most um, historically, traditionally important part of Eretz Israel. Um, Egypt made a peace, made a truce with the Israelis first on February 24th. Lebanon was next, May 23rd. Jordan on April 3rd. Syria was the last on July 30th. They held out, and that's interesting in terms of patterns. Syria is in many ways the most implacable of the uh, of the various uh, uh, enemies of the of the Jewish state, and Egypt was first. Is all symbolic. Although at the time, Egypt was our was perceived as the most bitter, fearsome of the of the various enemies of the Jews. They're still the strongest. True. True. But even though they're at peace. Right. Right. With the armistice agreements, Israel officially, so that really the declaration, the, the, the Independence Day, Yom Ha'atzmaut as they call it, uh, was not a significant day. It took another, almost a year, on May 11th, 1949, they were formally admitted as a member by the majority vote of the United Nations. They were accepted, even though the United Nations has remained relentlessly hostile to the uh, Jews and to the, and to the um, state of Israel. Um, yeah didn't hide it so much. Nowadays you have to kind of, it's not PC to express right. your anti-Semitism. They do it in other ways. But then you could be anti-Semitic and vocal about it. And we, we um, you missed a few classes. We talked about the Shoah and, and some of the, yeah, no, I'm saying, but very recently, some of the classes that we talked about, when people yeah, made these, oh, right, you remember the, the, the same thing? No, but you remember, you remember the quote to quotation, what did he say? Uh, no Jews is too many Jews. No Jews is too many Jews. And he, and this is a public figure who get away with saying such a thing. Today he'd be fired. 
Yeah. The war then comes to a close, but never technically ended. There's been an, a constant war. You can call it a war of attrition, whatever fancy term you want to give. I, I think the best way to picture the war that maintained with its Arab, with the Arabs, with the Arab neighbors and the other countries, and with the Arabs in its midst, um, whether they're um, Palestinian refugees or whether they're Israeli Arabs, is that the war waxes and wanes. Sometimes it heats up. Sometimes it simmers down. There are truces. Each side perennially regroups for the next bit around. We experienced that, if you remember, last summer's fighting, where everybody perceived the end of the war was not the end. It was simply uh, a pause in the, in the, in the tensions. Um, Israel lost over 6,000, uh, I mean, the Jews lost over 6,000 people. That's 1% of its population. If the United States, for example, in comparison, would lose this percentage, Chas today, that would mean it would have 315 million casualties. 315 million casualties. Uh, 1% of the people of, uh, 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 died. 2,000 of, of the dead had in one way or another survived the Holocaust. 2,000 of the dead were Holocaust survivors. Out of 6,000? Out of 6,000? Third of them, in other words, right? Um, on the Arab side, the casualties, we don't know, because there was not organized, there were not organized armies in many cases. A lot of these are just estimates. They estimate the losses somewhere between 8,000 and 15,000. Arab much more tribal. That's correct. They didn't have as clear records. That's right. Good, good observation. Now, about all told, 700,000 local Arabs fled. And they would be historically what are now referred to as Palestinian refugees. This is a term that's used and their kids and grandkids, and anybody who once visited Palestine once likes to count themselves a refugee. Arafat, Arafat with political savvy, liked to tell the story of how he was born in Jerusalem in, in the, um, in the Talbiya section, which is today a very upscale section near, um, near, uh, near uh, Rahavia, uh, when in fact he was born in Egypt, documented. Um, but that's what they do. They, you know, it's propaganda, and it's 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 beneficial to count yourself as a Palestinian refugee. So that was done. We estimate again that there were about seven hundred thousand local Arabs who fled. And again, this point that Ilan picked up on, and it's true to emphasize: what is a refugee? Does a person who knowingly flees on their own and goes to another land, he's a refugee, but he left. It was his choice to leave. He didn't have to, okay, maybe so, but he lived here. I don't know. In Ain Karim, in the west of Jerusalem, when they conquered Ain Karim, um, they, the story is told, some of the people came into a house, there was hot soup still on the table. They just sat down to eat dinner, and the soup was still hot. And the people said, oh, the Jews are coming. Okay, they packed a suitcase and they left. But clearly the way they left the hot soup on the table, they were ready to come back for dinner later on that evening. And the same family never returned. Or they were, or they were once a colony, or they left so fast that they... Right, they, 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 right. no, fair enough, but, but like, I'm trying to illustrate, I'm trying to illustrate here. There was a whole range. They left willingly, they were forced to leave. What makes a refugee? These are all questions. Saying, you, you can see the same scene and different people will think different things. So right. You see the hot soup, some people think they're coming back. You see the hot soup, some people think they were so scared they ran, ran you know. Fair enough. I'm trying to paint a complicated picture, and that it defies facile solutions. Um, part of the picture, we're, we're, we're going to talk about this too, but... Mm, oh, no, I'm going to talk about this now. I'm going to get to this now. Yeah. Uh, 
about half of the local Arabs who fled, fled to Yehuda Shomron, to what we call the West Bank, Judea and Samaria. The rest went to Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, Egypt. In Gaza, which was hosted a lot of the refugees, um, one of the... Um, one of the refugee camps was Jabalia, which is Arabic for mountain people. Which mountain did these people come from? The Jeru- no, the Jerusalem Corridor. Most of them traced their, uh, you know, their, their, uh, their flight from places like I've mentioned. Beit Machsir, which the Jews came to immediately, this abandoned Arab village, they turned Beit Machsir into, anybody know? The Jewish community of Beit Meir, where OJ, or Yushalayim, is located. Saris, Became right down the street, became the, Jew, the Jewish community of Shorish and the like. Uh, all, all the way down to the landscape, and most of the Arabs fled from there. Um, some people say, yeah, it's true, Saris became Shorish, but you know, Saris is probably the Arabic name of a once Jewish issue from Talmudic periods that was once upon a time called Shorish. So what goes around comes around. Right, the refugees constantly fleeing in history. If we look, if we take a broader view of history, and we see that this has been going on, this conflict is going on for for, for uh, generations. Um, so it's complicated. Um, the Jabalia uh, is a hotbed for terrorists today. You should realize um, most of these people identify as refugees. The Arab countries that now are in charge of these new refugees put them deliberately in refugee camps and do not permit them to integrate with their local populations. A, they don't like them. They're not interested in helping the Palestinians. Remember, the Arabs are not exactly, they don't identify as a people to help one another. But B, they use it for political gain. Because so you take pictures of them in terrible conditions. Exactly, and blame it on the Israelis. Look at the Palestinian refugee camps. That, of course, they kept the, 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 the fact that the deplorable conditions was purely because of the Jordanians, the Lebanese, and the Syrians keeping them, and the, and the Egyptians keeping them deplorable. But they they use that as political uh, weapons to be able to um, propaganda against the Israelis. Look at this. Look at the deplorable situations. Um, and it's a terrible. It's a human rights crisis, and so on. They they. Um, uh, when people try to leave the refugee camp, sometimes they're branded traitors and they're killed, their families are killed. No, no, you have to stay and be wretched and miserable in the camps. Um, the descendants continue to be denied citizenship in their host countries. This is an issue that lasts till today. Um, today we have approximately 1.5 million uh, Palestinians living in some 58 refugee camps around the Middle East. Um, there are 5 million people today who claim refugee status. Talk about, they talk about the law of return the Israel's got in, in any final negotiation. Uh, they have to repopulate these five million Arabs. Oh my, they talk about offsetting the demographic in Israel. That had no connection to Israel whatsoever. Okay, so, oh, details, details. Okay, these are part of the complications that we deal with when we talk about this issue. Um, May 15th remains for the Arabs around the world, Nakba Day, the morning, day of mourning. Um, you should be aware that exactly in the same year when all of this is happening in Eretz Israel and, and during 1948-49, um, tens of thousands of Jews were evicted from their homes, their refugees, in mostly Muslim-ruled lands. Uh, and there is, we're going to talk about this, a mass immigration of Jews from Muslim lands from the Maghreb, all of North Africa. Uh, Iraq, Iran, Syria, many, many of these lands would expel their Jews 
there'd be some 700, same number, interestingly, over the next three years, 700,000 re Jewish refugees, having lost, having kicked out of their homelands, were now refugees coming to Israel. And they, in the process, lost most of their money and their possessions. Of this, the breakdown is 100,000 come from Iraq, 300,000 come from North Africa, the Maghreb, uh, Egypt, Yemen, and other Middle Eastern countries. Um, there were other displaced European Jews who are now coming into Israel. Uh, many of them had been languishing in their own refugee camps in Cyprus uh, and around the world. The, um, so Israel now has this very complicated task, and this is, our, this is one of our next topics that we'll get to on Sunday. How do you start to build a state when you're absolutely, all of your resources have been depleted in, in, this, in this gargantuan task of fighting a war, which you could barely afford. You've now depleted all of your natural resources, and now you've got a whole country that's got to build itself from scratch. With, they're in debt, they're broke. They have no money, they have no food, they have no infrastructure really of a state. And to boot, you got all these um, starving refugees uh, now coming, coming and needing to be set up in their own home in, 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 a, in a strange land. Many of these refugees have been living in um, cultures that were not exposed to modernity. So their arrival in British Mandate Palestine, which was, as a British colony, was relatively modern. And as you had the amenities of a modern world as it was being set up, well, you're, you're being sent from Morocco, if you hear the stories that Ben Shushan tells about his family back in back in Morocco, they were going, they didn't know how to use a telephone. They didn't many of them. They didn't know how to go to a grocery store. These were and not that there were groceries to be found in the grocery store. And we'll talk about the, the severe years of austerity in the 1950s, where each family was given their weekly ration of an egg to eat and the like. Uh, I, I, I exaggerate, but not by much. Um, you had this, all of these, situ all of these uh, extreme situations are now confronting this new fledgling state. Um, during the next 30 years, there would be 800,000 Jews from Arab countries who would follow. Many of these refugees would settle in France. Most of the large Jewish population in France today indeed comes from the Maghreb. Uh, that's why there's such a large population of French Jews today who are Sephardi in origin. Um, or they would go to Europe or, or America. Um, on Sunday, what I would like to lead off with is a discussion of these cataclysmic events of the day, the reestablishment of a Jewish commonwealth in the Holy Land of Eretz Yisrael is a big deal. And it's one that's hard for us to make sense of. And in any such issue, where it's hard for the common mortal to make sense of, we turn to our leaders, to the people who are deep in Torah, and Torah understanding, and Ashkafa, to be able to understand, to make sense of how we're supposed to look at all this. And it's not one uniform view. I'm going to present several different views. Um, what do the Gnomes say? What's Das Torah about the state of Israel? And by extension, next week is going to be Yom Hatzma'ut in Eretz Israel. What do they have to say about that day? Is it a good, bad, negative thing? Is it something else? And there are certain things that might surprise you. So, Bezrasa Shem will pick up on that on Sunday.